0: So um, how many people have looked at this, have, have read the issue? It's good. Isn't it? Kuan Yin always evokes a, a kind of ease and peace. Uh, and it's, a, it's really a, a wonderful image for compassion Because it counteracts, for me, often a feeling of the burden of saving the world. Kuan Yin does not seem burdened, does she? There she is with deep compassion and caring, and yet she's so relaxed. Isn't that amazing? How is that possible? To feel so deeply the suffering, the pain of the world, and yet be just so relaxed. Like, it's okay. I can handle this. Not only I can handle it, but I can respond to it with grace with wisdom with clarity with centeredness compassion sometimes is a mm, can feel heavy because when it's touched we it touches that place of caring in the heart um, and in our practice, the bodhisattva is not feeling heavy. And there's a a joy to the bodhisattva. It's like I think I said this a couple of weeks ago. You know, it doesn't we can we can look at the newspapers and just say, you know, oh my gosh, there's so much suffering in the world, and the archetypal bodhisattva. Who comes to relieve suffering looks for suffering. Right? It's not like you know. Oh God, I don't know if I can handle another thing. It's oh suffering. Great, now I can respond to it. That's mm, that's quite a an archetype to live up to. And I thought that it, it made uh, it, it felt right as we head into the holidays, is a good time to explore this theme because this is a time where um, we need to stay connected to our hearts. We need to stay connected to the light. Hmm, hi. Um, Where we, this is a time where we're reminded that there's a, a tenderness and a goodness and a, a connection and a love that we all can uh, appreciate and meet at. I was just reading in the, I forget if it was the Chronicle or um, or Newsweek, and it said, uh, it was this article about the thing that people, that I think it was something like 38% of people interviewed saying the hardest thing Thing for them about the holidays was being nice. Was fe- feeling they needed to be nice. Did anybody see that article? You did? What was it like thirty-eight percent or something like that? Yeah. Oh, I've got to be nice, and I can certainly understand that if you're just kind of either in a grumpy mood or if you've got things to do, or somebody says hi. It's so nice to see you. You know, Merry Christmas. you kind of. In a bah humbug mood, you know, but it it actually feels better to be nice uh, f- at least once you do turn on that flip that switch, and there might be a lot of resistance to flipping that switch. I don't want to flip it on. I just want to be hi, oh, hello <laughs> so it seems like this is a, a good time to just remember about how, um, how good it is to flip on that switch. That we all have that capacity and we can get touched by it just by seeing, seeing it in others. That's why we go to, there's all those Christmas movies that come out each year that you know, hopefully will make millions of dollars for the, for the production company. They work. They are, I was flipping the channels a, a couple of uh, a week or two ago, and there, as I was flipping, my all-time favorite movie, *It's a Wonderful Life*. I just have to see like five minutes of that movie, and I start to well up. Actually, even just talking about it, I can feel myself filling up. Why is that? Because there's something about the goodness of others or the, the, the love and the caring that, that people can experience, just even seeing it in another, that opens that place up in us. So, first I'll, I'll talk a little bit about um, the Bodhisattva. Um, ideal in Buddhism. And in, as the mind issue points out, the the Bodhisattva is both in Theravada Buddhism and in the Mahayana Buddhism, which is you know, Zen and Tibetan uh, schools. But in the Theravadan school, where... This style of Vipassana comes from, which is taught in, which is practiced in Southeast Asia, Theravada, the way of the elders in Burma, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Southeast Asia. Um, The idea of the Bodhisattva is someone who is cultivating and perfecting qualities of heart and qualities of mind, not only to become fully awakened, but to become a Buddha. So the Buddha, Gautama Buddha, was called, before he was enlightened, the Bodhisatta in Pali, it's Satta, not sattva. And um, when you take the vow in the classical Theravadin sense, when you take a Bodhisattva vow, in the in some theravadin schools it's very different than taking a bodhisattva vow in uh, in zen or tibetan tradition because you are saying i am going to keep on working on myself and developing all the qualities until i too become a buddha now that doesn't happen so often it's the, the next Buddha from Gotama Gota, Buddha is supposedly um, going to be eons from now. Maitreya Buddha or Mateya Buddha. So if you're taking that vow, you're really in it for the long haul. Right? <clears throat> and it can be a very inspiring... Just making that commitment can be very inspiring, but for some people, it's, you know, for most the Theravadan monks, they say, mm, you know, I'm in this, uh, I'm, I, I can't commit to that. Uh, I want to become uh, liberated and free and do as good work as I can in that process. Um, but in the Mahayana school, Zen, and Tibetan, the bodhisattva ideal became something that was a lot more accessible, where you are practicing both for your own liberation and to help others become liberated. and one goes with the other. That if you're just practicing for your own liberation, that's very limited. But if you are not working on yourself to help support others, that's also very limited. Now there's a few different models. And a couple of years ago, we went through Pema Chodron's really excellent book called No Time to Lose. I think we spent a, co- a few months on it um, through all the chapters of Shanti Davis Bodhisattva's uh, Guide to the Way of Life, um, and she makes the point in that book that there are um, basically three different models in the in those schools of doing the Bodhisattva trip. One is that you postpone your own enlightenment until all beings are enlightened. Now that's even more than becoming a Buddha. <clears throat> so that's and all of these are archetypes and, and metaphors where you are vowing to you're just going to keep on going coming back and serving until all beings are enlightened. And that compassion is the heart of your your practice and postponing the full development of wisdom another model is that you become you work on yourself become fully awakened so that you can truly benefit others and you keep coming back from that awakened place and then the third model which Pema children seemed to recommend and which makes sense to me, is that you don't wait until you're fully enlightened to support people and respond to their suffering. And you don't postpone your own awakening until everybody else becomes enlightened. That you're doing it together that you are working on your own heart and mind and in the process sharing to whatever extent your caring and your love to be a benefit for others so that it actually becomes a motivation for your practice, your personal practice, but done from a spirit of generosity. Uh, sometimes in the mahayana traditions they look at the theravada and say you know, oh those theravadas you know they're they're just they're just out for their own liberation they don't really care so much about others and one could easily make that case because in some of the scriptures the buddha basically as as uh, Bhikkhu bodhi points out in his article the, the idea of uh, a Bodhisattva coming back for the relieving of others is is not mentioned, um, and the buddha doesn 't mention it as a, as a path as a practice anywhere in the Pali Canon and so it can be seen as a kind of self contained practice, but actually, uh, and Gil Fronsdell makes this point in his article. Um, some of the most compassionate Buddhist masters are Theravadan masters. And he he said he would go to the the Zen center. Gil was saying this. He practiced in in Japan uh, for some time. And and they were kind of poo-pooing the Theravadan model as being kind of selfish. But they were so focused on their own... Their own very intense practice, and you come to the the, the center to the zendo and it 's all about your own internal practice and then you'd go to the Theravadan countries and, and practice there, and their meditation center is kind of like a social uh, a social welfare center where there's family and community, and everybody is is welcomed and, and taken care of. And he said he saw it both ways. you know. So it's not to put anybody, any one school in the better or worse category. And that, that what happens from practice, from just doing your own practice, your own uh, mindfulness practice, is the heart naturally opens and compassion naturally arises from that. Bhikkhu Bodhi is a perfect example of that. As if you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi came here and he's given uh, talks a couple of times. Uh, and he is like the premier translator of the Pali Canon. And he has become so dedicated and involved in this project, Buddhist Global Relief, of um, addressing world hunger, and, uh, and poverty uh, around the world, very dedicated. that's what he spends most of his time doing when he's not translating. And if you've done practice, you know that the, the, like the heart opens, the clearer you are, and you see through that sense of separation of me and other, and as that interconnectedness becomes more and more your perspective that that non-separation just expresses itself naturally as compassion. <clears throat> this is um from Shantideva. The I, I have this on my uh, altar in this my little uh meditation uh in my in my backyard. <coughs> It was given to me by a friend. And this is from the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. This is the mm, declaration in that whole beautiful uh, um, body of teachings of the aspiration to be a Bodhisattva. And this is, I'll just read this to you before we go on. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless. A guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall. And a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed. For all who need a servant, may I be a slave. That's, a, that's the one word that kind of catches me, but this is a complete letting go of identity. May I be the wishing jewel, the, the vase of plenty, a word of power, and the supreme remedy. May I be the tree of miracles and for every being the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus, for every single thing that lives in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. It's quite an aspiration. And the thing that is inspiring for me is that whatever moves you, whatever vision you have, that compassion, which is the heart of the Bodhisattva's path, that compassion can be practiced. It can be practiced, it can be cultivated, and one can one doesn't have to wait until all beings are free to see the fruits of it doing it not out of duty but because it really feels good there's a a line also in shanti deva that i love uh, that i say uh, a lot in in sharing about the process of awakening he says when one is in touch with the miracle of awakening then um they are lifted above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. To be lifted above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. That's where the real wealth is in giving to life. That's the key to happiness. Not what's in it for me, but What do I have to give? What do I have to offer? Mm. You might be familiar with the uh, uh, Martin Seligman book, Authentic Happiness. He's the father of positive psychology and he says the key, and nothing Buddhist about that book except for the essence of the, the truth underlying some of the principles, And he found that the key to happiness is finding out what your gifts are and learning to share them in a spirit of contribution. That's what really makes us feel good, isn't it? I mean, and there you are. Maybe exchanging gifts on Christmas or wh- whenever you, Hanukkah, or whenever you exchange gifts, uh, if you do, or whether it's a holiday or not a holiday. It's one thing to receive a gift. Yeah. Oh, it's so sweet. And you can feel really touched and moved. But you know that feeling when you've thought it out and you say, they're going to really like this right and there you are when they if you're around when they open it up isn't that a cool feeling like and they they get touched oh thank you and it's like oh yeah isn't that great that i could be responsible for making somebody feel a little bit more loved and joyful that's, that's really, I mean, when you think about it, there's nothing in it for you other than to see somebody else happy. So it's really a, a practice, a, a selfless practice that um, compassion is, is, is really a practice of anatta, where you are, Sharing because there's nothing in it for you other than the joy of expressing your caring. As the Dalai Lama uses this phrase, selfish altruism. And he says it's a really good thing. Selfish altruism is a good thing. It's like seeing how good it feels. You want that hit of seeing how good it feels to be altruistic. Of course, you know, you can get grasping at that one too and addicted to that. And You know, oh, well, I'll just go around saving the world because I'll feel good all the time. But when it's just coming from an authentic place, there's something so pure in it that's so uplifting, uh, it's really... um, it's moving to just see how your heart can be touched like that. Mm-hmm. I just want to ask you for a moment to think of who inspires you. Say in, in, your, in your life, whether it's uh, somebody that you know or somebody who maybe you don't know personally, who are the inspiring figure, figures or figure in your life? And uh, what are they like in terms of their relations to others? Why are you so inspired? Okay. Let's just take a few comments. Who who inspires you, and what qualities about them inspire you? And just take a few comments. And here, Andrew, can you pass it? Hi, I'm John. Um, I have a, a supervisor, a clinical supervisor that I uh, I work with, and um, she's just really selfless. And um, last year she donated her ki- one of her kidneys mm-hmm. to someone she didn't know. And um, it was just really moving. And just the way she deals with the clients we work with is just really remarkable, how um, loving she is. And... Um, uh, encompassing and um, non-judgmental, mm-hmm. so those are the qualities that I find really um, wonderful to mm-hmm. be to be around her. Beautiful. So a real generosity of heart, and she's present and non-judgmental, mm-hmm. and she can really be there for people. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks. Who else? Who inspires you? Come on, don't be shy. Over there, Corey.
1: What came to mind for me was my great-aunt, who actually passed away about seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And she was actually pretty judgmental and could be really critical and um, you know, was afraid for the two generations under her and all the things that we were doing that she felt were you know, that were frightening to her, because mm-hmm. they were different. But she was the most gracious lady, otherwise. She really she gave so much of her time and heart and and resources to her family and to um, she went to church every Sunday and gave generous donations and um, I I think what I what I like so much is just the combination of both of those sides of her.
0: Mm-hmm. But what really sounds like what inspired you was her her being there for others in her generosity. Yeah, of, of heart. just
1: her, it was just, an, it was just a natural impulse for her mm-hmm. to give.
0: Yeah, natural impulse. Great, thanks. There's one more, did you, somebody else, you would start to have your hand up. Anybody else? Last one? Okay, and we'll just, okay, one last one over here.
2: Um, I have an editor who is um, he's just amazing in the way that he deals with people he um, he works with probably 20 to 30 people and he has this way of making every single person feel special like they are a critical part of the team and what they're doing is really important and he has a way of editing can be a really hard process but he has this way of doing it such that you always come out feeling like, oh, wow, I did this great thing, even though he's made a ton of changes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he's just really graceful, but he's just his heart is just so open. Mm-hmm. And he says that all of this interaction with people just fills him up. Mm. Like he feels blessed. Mm. But he's really blessing all of
0: us. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. I wanted to e- hear a few comments just because even in hearing about somebody's aunt or uh, editor or whatever, we can get what's called elevated. Uh, Jonathan Haidt has this this uh, f- uh, this term: being elevated. We hear about inspiration, and we ourselves become inspired. You know, I just you know, I'd love to meet your editor. You know, or you, you know your your aunt who passed away, or, you know, it's like, oh yeah, there is that goodness, and it awakens that in us. So you see how it works. That when you are generous yourself or express your caring, it's uh, it's contagious. There's something about it that inspires others around you. So you don't have to even take a formal bodhisattva vow to know that your caring makes a difference. If you do take a bodhisattva vow... Anybody anybody here has taken a bodhisattva vow? Okay. Just three of us. Okay. It's a very powerful thing to do where you say, okay, I am in this... um, not just for myself, I'm in this to wake up for the benefit of all. And it's useful to see also that there's no way that your practice doesn't benefit others, whether or not you've taken that vow. You know, I, I usually say if you have a hard time giving yourself, taking some quiet time for yourself for the meditation, If you have a hard time giving yourself a gift, think of it as giving everybody else in your life a gift, because they reap the benefits of your own sitting practice. Well, but if you have that in a conscious way, it just ups the inspiration. This is from uh, Nyosho Kempo, who is a great Dzogchen master. He says, we're not practicing for ourselves alone, since everybody is involved and included in the great scope of our prayers and meditations with this perfectly pure motivation. The the natural outflow of so-called solitary meditation or prayer is spontaneous benefit for others, like the rays of the sun, rays which spontaneously reach out, This good heart, pure heart, vast and open mind is not something foreign to us, yet it's something we could relate to more, cultivate, generate, and embody. And he says, the very heart essence of Buddha Dharma, he thinks, is to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed, and even become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. Okay, so I wanted to uh, go through a a few things that one particular article... um, uh, impressed me with on compassion curriculum. And this was uh, an interview with the Dalai Lama's translator, uh, Tupten Jimpa, who is a, a pretty high guy on his own. And he is um, he's uh, uh, leading this compassionate curriculum through Stanford where they're teaching people to be compassionate uh, as part of uh, uh, a whole training that uh, the Dalai Lama was sponsoring. And he says, individuals who take the course will probably feel a greater sense of ease within themselves, a kind of settledness, of becoming more friends with themselves, which then creates an oasis of settledness and expressing itself in the way you treat the people around you. Then he makes the point of a few different levels of compassion, a few different words first defining it. It says sometimes the word sympathy is used to uh, point to compassion, but sympathy isn't quite there. Sympathy can often include feeling sorry for somebody, where you feel, oh, that's, that's too bad. Oh, I really feel for you but it's the near enemy of compassion, what's also sometimes called pity. Now sympathy has a lot of different uh, flavors to it, but it can be that limited sense. Compassion is talked of as the quivering of the heart in response to the suffering of others, where you are really feeling their, their suffering And there's an openness that's not trying to make it different, but you're just there with them. And then he says, another level is altruism. He says that compassion flowers as altruism where you are moved to act. And you get the the full benefit of that compassionate heart. He says, uh, but how do you do that? How do you... How do you move from one to the other? How can you feel that genuine connection for people who aren't so close to you? It's one thing to feel it for your loved ones, but what about people who you're not particularly feeling a connection with? Now, of course, you read an article in the newspaper and your heart can go out. But when you are dealing with somebody who's maybe not so easy, where you don't have an affinity for them, how can you practice compassion there? Because he's saying the bodhisattva expands to include everybody in the field of that caring heart. And he talks about a concept... Um, called yi-yong which connects with empathy but it is the ability to be able to hold others dear to value others and it is the ability to see the appealing quality a kind of lovability in the other the stronger your yi yang with someone is, the more your heart will open to that person and the more strongly you feel that others, other person's pain to be unbearable. So this is the first step where you're actually opening to that other person's pain. And initially, it's, it touches you and it, it's painful but in a good way. But the first step is actually getting beyond any kind of barriers that you might have to see, oh, there's something lovable about this person. That can be a challenge, I know. But this is this is the the practice that he teaches in the compassionate curriculum. What could be lovable about this person? even if they're nasty, confused, oblivious, to find something that touches your heart about them. Mm. How to do that? Any idea? How would you do that? Say, if you're having a really hard time with someone, What would be the secret to letting your heart be touched by them? Anyone ever take that as a practice? Yeah. Seeing them as a four year old as a little baby. That's that's one of my main practices too. Yeah. You know. Oh, yes, dear. (laughs) I hope you get over your tantrum soon. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes. Ah, uh, okay. Beautiful. Imagining what their parents could love about them. They were lovable to somebody at some time, right? Okay, so you, and as it's said in Tibetan practice, we were all each other's parents and children at some point, okay? So being a parent. Okay, there was one more here. Why don't you just uh, here, pass that over? Hold on, hold on. Let's, let's do it.
3: Uh, the practice of metta. The practice of metta has worked for me. Say um, more. Uh, as we speak, I I have this um, person very close to me who's uh, directing a lot of misplaced, I believe, anger on me, and it's um, my first reaction is to keep mm-hmm. myself distant mm-hmm. because I need that to protect myself. Mm-hmm. However. Um, it's my daughter. Mm-hmm. I can't close off, and it has to it for me it's i I've thought about it a lot, and I sit and just repeat meta and um, sometimes I, I feel I feel the tenderness in my heart, mm-hmm. but it's still the step of um, actually reconnecting, um, which I haven't reached, but I can see the um, resistance mm-hmm. melting away by mm-hmm. just a constant. I mean, I'll be driving in, to work in the morning and that's the first thing that comes to my mind and I repeat
0: mm-hmm. metta. So pr- just practicing metta. Mm-hmm. And it's also true, we, 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 there can be a, a need for healthy boundaries between us and others. It's not like we want to be putting ourselves in harm's way a lot, but just, and a lot of times, compassion is done from a safe distance, but to see the, the price that we pay when we keep our hearts closed. So this is the first thing, all right? Finding something that melts your heart towards them. Okay. Mm. Then, as he points out, to see the difference between the, the actions that somebody manifests and who they are in their being, to separate that out. This this is a high level of, of training where you see that their actions come from some confusion, some ignorance in some way that they don't see, you know, it's like, Forgive them, they know not what they do. And he makes the point, Jimpa, that you feel the pain. You can't just go to compassion. That you first feel another's pain and then you move through the pain to a place where there's wisdom that can hold the pain. So it doesn't hurt. It hurts for a little. He talks about there being a little twinge when you are touched by somebody's suffering or it can be even a big twinge, but you don't get stuck in there because compassion is a sublime state. And if you're just saying, oh, this hurts, this is so, too painful for me to open up to, it gets, um, it's not fun at all. But to say, oh, this hurts, this is part of life, and can I be present and discerning that this is, this is bearable too, bearing the unbearable, and to move through that, that feeling of emotion, to just see, to be the Kuan Yin that can say, okay, this too is part of life, how can I hold this? So I thought what we can do just to um, have a little bit of exercise in practicing being bodhisattvas is to um, turn to somebody near you. You won't have to say anything in this, so don't worry about being brilliant or revealing or whatever. Just turn to somebody near you for a a brief little exercise. And uh, if you need a partner, raise your hand. You you need to l- be looking right at that person. Okay. Anybody who needs a partner. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, and this will be done in silence, just to practice seeing who this person is beyond the uh, exterior. Just look at this person and just realize that this person has known their sorrows and suffering in their life. That they've known loss That they've known disappointment. They've been afraid. They've cried. This person knows suffering. And as you tune into that, See if it's possible to allow for them to go through what they need to go through in this life and just let their suffering touch your caring heart. And the classical compassion phrases are, um, may you be free of suffering, or... I care, I care about your suffering. And as you tune into that, become focused on the caring. That is, you're caring about them, but stay in touch with the heart that cares. Perhaps you find something appealing in them that you can relate to, and then simply let their suffering move through you to a place that they're learning the lessons that they're learning in their journey. And you can just respond with caring. And then you can close your eyes. And become aware of the feeling of caring. See if it's possible to let yourself be touched by another and still have an open an openness like the Kuan Yin figure in relaxed repose that cares but is still at ease. Okay, and if you want, you can just uh, check in with the other person for a few moments and share what that was like before we come back. just another minute or so, and then we'll have to end. Okay, you can uh, thank your partner and come on back. Just, ha- just have a, a minute or, or so left. Any uh, any comments, observations from that? That was like, yeah. Is it, uh, where's it? Where's the mic? Where is it? Anyone yeah. over there? Where is, it? is it Sarah? Yeah. Susanna. <laughs> Susanna. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, so I have a question. Yeah. Um, This felt really lovely, and my big question as you were talking about it was how you get from um, feeling the pain to it feeling good. (laughs) Um, I worked for a lot of years with uh, kids from really troubled situations, Mm -hmm. and my husband came home from school tonight with um, having uh, a kid who's probably going to be expelled Mm -hmm. who was just in deeply, deeply difficult situations. just everything about his livestock, basically, mm-hmm. and um, and my husband was in so much pain about losing this child, um, young man from his class, and I don't think either of us has any sense. We both feel it really deeply, yeah. but the uh, the impotence is so intense. How to get from that feeling of of um, of lovingness and pain to any kind of Peace in it
0: mm-hmm. well compassion uh, the secret is um, that compassion is needs to be held with equanimity um, and it's not that you can pretend you don't feel that pain and you can't hurry up the process but to um, to hold it in a bigger perspective and um, where this world has pain and sorrow and suffering. And the way I hold it anyway is hoping that this person will take the lessons in their life and um, see and transform that pain into something useful. When I look at my own life and, and how it often works is that pain and sorrow and suffering can, it's possible that it can uh, wake us up. And sometimes we have to you know, have a really intense wake-up call. But also, if you hold it more than mm-hmm. in one lifetime, that helps a lot. So it's the, the bigger and bigger and bigger perspective that says, yeah, this world has joys and it has sorrows, and the fact that I can care about another is really is what I can bring to the, um, to the table because my own contraction uh, leaves me not able to respond as skillfully as possible. Just like when you're in your own pain, if somebody is able to just be there and say, Yeah, this is a bear, and I'm with you, and I care about you, that that's the gift that is given to you. In the same way, this is a practice of cultivating a centeredness in the midst of all of that, you know, that says, Yeah, there is suffering in the world taking a breath, feeling it all and holding it in a in a much wider perspective. So and that's what that's what we're called to do. Because otherwise we can just complete be completely overwhelmed and torn up by all the sorrow and the suffering in the world. So it starts with our own sorrow and suffering, holding that. In a bigger perspective, and then being a healing environment for for others too. So, so here's your uh, assignment for the holidays, right? Just to see if you can keep your heart open and get in touch with the the caring aspect. Not the su- suffering is not sublime, but the fact that we can care is. Sublime. Well, let's close with a short metta. in feeling the grace of the fact that you uh, even want to practice compassion and open to the sorrow around you, and that you have a loving heart, and you're developing your wisdom. I can hold it. May I open to suffering with wisdom, equanimity and compassion. And then to extend to all beings, may all beings learn to hold their suffering with compassion. May all awaken. And may we all feel the love that's inside and learn to share it well. And may our coming here together be a benefit to all beings everywhere. May all beings find happiness and peace. good holidays. See you next year. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.